Avalara proudly sponsors this podcast series about accountants by accountants and featuring some of the best thought leaders in the industry. Thank you to our sponsor, Avalara. Avalara's award-winning tax automation solutions help accounting practitioners and businesses of all sizes simplify sales tax compliance with real-time rates, automated returns filing, and more. Learn more at avalara.com. Hey everyone, this is Laura Lynn and you're listening to the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly Accounting Podcast. More accountants than ever are experimenting and shaping our profession in new and in interesting ways. On this show, I sit down with these rock stars to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, the struggles, and the strategies that they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. Accountants can earn free CPE credit from listening to this podcast. Just download the Earmark CPE app in the App Store or visit earmarkcpe.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the podcast. I can only assume if you're listening that you are either a huge accounting nerd, so you are my peeps, or you are here because you have last minute CPE you're trying to catch up on. So either way, we are happy to have you. I would like to, though, dedicate this episode to my college softball coach who wouldn't let me give interviews my senior year to the school newspaper because I spoke too off cuff. So I have a microphone now and I can speak off cuff all I want. (laughs) What do you think of that, Carol? But here's the thing. She was not in the wrong. They absolutely should have silenced me. So anyway, this topic for today's podcast is the worst thing I ever did. Because let's be honest, if you've been in business longer than 3.5 seconds, you've messed up in one way or another. But the thing is, you know, we all mess up, but let's learn from it and let's learn together. You know, as much as I love hearing people's success stories, I personally love hearing more people's failures and how they learn from it. So that is going to be the focus. And I'd like to introduce our amazing first guest, Dan Luthi. Dan has been in the accounting space for over a decade. He is a partner at Ignite Spot Accounting, which has a team of, when I was looking at their page, over a couple dozen, and he sits on multiple councils for some of the big accounting software vendors like Intuit, Gusto, Bill.com. So thank you so much, Dan, for being here and welcome. Hey, thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak off the cuff with you. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh, <laughs> and out of all the guests I was reaching out to, you were the first person who said yes. So <laughs> Lucky. Lucky me. five gold stars for you. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. No, this is awesome. I love the I love talking with you. We've spoken a few times together, but the topics are awesome about this, uh, these sessions too. Oh, great, great. Okay. So let's just do a quick kind of little get to know you for people who haven't heard you on other podcasts, who haven't seen you, you know, out on the Twitter sphere or whatever. So how did you first get into accounting? What is your origin story? You know, I never planned to get into accounting. I, um, I was planning on just going to school to get a business degree. I had a really awesome, um, kind of basic entry level accounting professor. Um, her name was Jadian Love. Uh-huh. Um, she had worked and spent all of her career in public accounting and then decided to become a teacher. And she actually made it enjoyable which was really cool. Like she broke it down into very simple, common terms. And at the time also, I was donating some of my own time to kind of help um, my church out with some accounting needs. And Mm -hmm. there was this really kind of older gentleman who was an auditor who had been in forever. And he like broke everything down in this really cool like framework for me of like why it was so important to do all these things. And so both of them really just made that 
big, big impact on me on what I could be and how it could apply to how I thought. It was really cool. Oh, so basically you had some uh, amazing mentors who kind oh, of much. made the made the industry something you wanted to be a part of. That's really oh, very cool. Much so. so what is, so now you've been in the industry, what is one unexpected result from when you entered the industry that you never would have foreseen coming? Um, honestly, talking on a podcast about accounting. <laughs> Like that was, you know, I, I never thought I would be in a space to be able to communicate on a broad spectrum about my thoughts and feelings about what I did. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. always just kind of thought I'd be connected to clients and working with them, but being able to share what I've gone through and, and also what I think about different tools and softwares and platforms and all that kind of stuff. Like it's really awesome, but it's definitely something I never thought would happen. <laughs> Yes, I would say, you know what, same's for me. I never would have thought, you know, I about 10 years ago is when I first went back to school for accounting, what I thought like, this will lead to talking on a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> never in a minute. Never, never, never. <laughs> All right. So then let's say if you weren't an accountant, what else would you be doing? You know, I, I initially planned to go to school just to get a business degree because my brother and I had planned to open a cabinet shop together. Oh. And... And I've loved woodworking my entire life. He, uh -huh. my older brother, actually got me into it when I was about 16 years old, and it's still something I love to this day. So it's been you know 20 plus years since then. And he actually is a finished carpenter by yeah. trade, and so he finished off on that track. But uh, those dang accounting professors changed my mind um, <laughs> and when I was in school on what I wanted to do. And so we uh, that's that's probably what I still be doing if I um, if I had come, gone down this route. Okay, so in the background, I could see a nice kind of barn door. Did you make that? I did. Yeah, it was uh, it was one late night or two <laughs> late nights um, in busy season last year. Like I was just like at the end of all my wits and was just like the heck with this. I need to do something that's just frees my mind from everything. And so I went to my garage and or went to Home Depot, bought a bunch of stuff and went to my garage and worked on it till like three o'clock and four o'clock in the morning and got it all pretty much put together in one day. It was pretty awesome. Oh, I love it. Well, it's gorgeous. So oh, then, cause I've, I've like dabbled in woodworking back when I owned a home, like I did, you know, I was following the blogs and I was, you know, <laughs> building things. So I like know enough to be dangerous, but I know my answer to this, but what ways do you kind of see an overlap in woodworking and that in accounting? For me, it's the, uh, that consistency, at least knowing the structure of what you're trying mm -hmm. to accomplish but then also the reality of it too is, is like when you have the right tools, mm -hmm. it works so much better. Like everything <laughs> comes together so much better when you have the right tools. But, but if you have to plan for it, I mean, truthfully, like I pulled up the design for these doors off of Pinterest or something like yep. that. And I hate Pinterest because nothing is ever right on your budget from Pinterest. But, <laughs> uh, um, but I pulled it up off of there, just took the kind of framework off it and went from there to, to build out what they were and, and, but that's no different than accounting. I mean, you have to know and have to assess what it is that you need. And especially in this day and age with cast work and everything like that, like really lay it out. And then when you have the right tools, it makes it so much easier to perform a better job and it, to complete it when you need to. Oh, totally. Yeah. I For me, kind of where that overlap comes in is it's like you have these blueprints, but how you actually execute that finished project, whether it's different materials, different tools, is all up to you. So it's there's yeah. a lot of creativity in it. Oh, that so. you wouldn't think of. Like when people think of accounting, the last thing, th thing they think of is creativity, you know? 100%. <laughs> and thinking outside the box. But honestly, I think that's what makes the best accountants are people who are able to do that. 
Yeah. The only time people think of creative accounting is when they think of or are talking about Enron or Arthur Anderson or something like that, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, they're like tax but, fraud. Yep. <laughs> but but I think to your point though, it's like it's a very different approach. Like because there's different ways now of doing everything. And so it's very much that that concept of whatever tools and resources you, you use can actually provide a different result in how you get there. So yep. I love it. Absolutely. They can either speed it up or slow it down. You know, are you using your circular saw or are you using a hand saw? Like very that? much so. Very much so. <laughs> All right. Avalara helps businesses of all sizes get indirect tax compliance right. Their sales tax solutions help you manage sales and use tax complexities while lessening risk for your business and clients. Whether you're a small business or a global enterprise, Avalara can help you deliver tax compliance services confidently and efficiently. Over 30,000 organizations across the globe use Avalara's cloud-based compliance solutions to solve transaction tax compliance needs, including sales and use, VAT, and other direct and indirect taxes. So we kind of have this broken down into groups of the worst thing I ever did, because obviously with running a business, there's a lot that can go wrong in a lot of different areas. So I wanted Dan to touch on multiple areas. And so the first one is the worst thing I ever did with employees. This one, this one's a tough one. I mean, mm -hmm. when I first, it, it's always tough to try to determine when you're first a manager versus when you're not. I remember back when I was first a manager, I was early in my career, so I was sacrificing a bunch of time to to do things. I actually had a heart to heart with one of my employees, and I use heart to heart as an air quote. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, pretty much told him he had to like get rid of everything important in his life to be able to focus on his career, <laughs> and like, <laughs> and like he was so mad. Um, because that's what I did. Like, it was like, I, yeah. I mean, I stopped playing golf. I stopped oh. doing family activities at times because my career was important to me and I loved it. Like yeah. I actually, like, I've always loved what I, what I do and not everybody does. And that was something I've learned later in life that like, I totally messed up in, in how I communicated. We don't practice that policy even now with our own firm. Like it's not about how much time you commit. It's the value and quality of what you do. But I wish I would have known that back then because he had left shortly after that conversation and he'd been with me for like two years. So like all that resource and all that time and, and his quality of who he was like mm -hmm. totally messed him up from, from me and him having that conversation. Yeah. Do you think now he's like, has like war stories of like, oh, this time I had the worst boss who said I Seriously. couldn't have any life outside of work. <laughs> yeah. Every time he sees me on LinkedIn, he's just like, that guy's a liar. That's not how he is. <laughs> trying to create work-life balance. From so, I've changed. <laughs> So then at what point did that mindset change though? Because obviously you're not there anymore. No, I, I think it was, I mean, honestly, it was probably about a year after that. Mm -hmm. Um, when, when there was just this massive shift, not only in myself, but with the people that we were hiring mm -hmm. of like, they wanted a work-life balance. And I love the, the term work-life balance because it means so much to different people. It's not just mm -hmm. 40 hours of work week or whatever. It's, it's really depending on who you are, but finding that balance, I think is the most important part, like figuring out what it is that you need and how you go through it. And, and that was kind of one of the things that changed the, how I even have conversations with my staff now, like, what is it that you actually want to accomplish? So mm -hmm. it's been, been several years since we had that conversation, but man, I still think about that conversation every time we get a new employee 
and uh, and what my my dark expectations were of of each of our employees <laughs> before. So, do you feel like you and the other leaders at your company do a good job leading by example with that, like showing what that actually looks like? You know, so it's not one of those things where it's like you know, have a good work-life balance, wink, wink, but I'm working 80 hours a week and I might secretly judge you if you don't too. We've, we've definitely changed over, over time. That's, it's one of those areas where I think this is the hardest part when you are deeply passionate about what you Mm do. It's not the work-life balance is different for you than it is for someone else. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I work, I mean, if I was to categorize how much time I actually work, it's probably over 50 hours a week, but it's me that I classify that as my learning and my development and all that kind of stuff too, which technically is work, but I do it because I enjoy it. Like yeah. I don't do it because I have to, I do it because I want to, and I want to be more relevant with my customers and with, you know, with the things I'm doing. And so to say that I should work less than that, just because like, to make someone else feel good is, is what we try to communicate, like do mm-hmm. what you need to do, but yeah. here's your list of expectations for the the wage that we expect you to perform. So it's, that, that's what we really tried to put more emphasis on is balancing the expectations to what you get paid so that you can choose how you want to invest your time separately. Yeah. So when that decision was made, was it like a conscious thing? Like at some point, the leadership team came together and was like, we need to change our culture. And as a result, like we're, you know, we have different employee handbooks, you know, uh, subjects or we have, yeah. uh, different PTO policies. Like were there actual like concrete changes that the staff could see or was it more just like a communication of it it was so when we when we had our kind of our real true formal uh interaction with everybody about it i mean we'd always had it kind of as an underlying principle but just like you said i think people were like well you work a whole lot so maybe i should Mm -hmm. it was it was probably like right actually before covid so mm-hmm. it's been about two and a half years now since since we did it. We actually sent out a questionnaire, our blind questionnaire to our staff. Oh, nice. And, and required all of them to actually respond. So like it was, it took like four weeks to get everybody to respond because nobody likes to respond to them. But yeah. it asked heartfelt questions about like what you felt like our firm was and what you felt like was causing your inabilities to perform or elevate yourself or different things like that. And, yeah. and one of the big feedbacks that we got was, we feel like we have to work way too much and it's hard to shut off from, mm. from your work, from, from just work in general. And so within, I think two or three weeks after that, we completely changed our PTO policy. Uh-huh. We went from a kind of this, uh, use it, you know, uh, more of an ambiguous, like however much time you want, you can go and use the unlimited PTO that everybody claims is glorious mm-hmm. to actually earn PTO mm-hmm. to kind of make it to where you knew what you were counting down against. Yeah. And then, we offered uh, a week of uh, paid sick leave also for our employees. Nice. To be able to get that so they can go through. And then we also started being more considerate about how we sent emails and how we sent Slack message to people. And and truthfully, Slack adding in scheduled notifications was like one of the best things they ever did because yeah. it allowed us to be able to, like, you can work whenever you want, but just schedule it whenever else is working for it to hit their inbox so that they can see it. And so... That those were the kind of things we had to actively choose to do, in in, in addition to just regular changes and, and updating kind of fluctuations for our employees. Yeah. So since then, so you did that survey back about two years ago. Now, have you done any surveys, blind surveys since then? Yes. 
Okay. So is that yeah, then like a regular, is there a regular cadence to that or? It's not as regular as we probably should be doing them. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we did one probably six months after that happened and definitely saw a vast improvement. We did one about a year later after that second one. And so we're probably due for another one just to be able to kind of go through and check and do a check and balance. But I think that's one of the things that we probably gained more than anything from it was there's things that people will say in a blind survey that they are not comfortable saying in a group or saying even just in a one-on-one. And and you really need that kind of information to make good decisions. Yeah. As much as it hurts sometimes with the things people say, you're giving them a space to be honest and you have to respect them for it because you as a leader oftentimes get to be straight and honest with them. So why can't they be honest with you at times? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a, that's, that's really great. So let's say though, cause you have a significant, how many employees do you guys have? We have just over 30 right now. 30. Yeah. That's awesome. So let's say you were starting out and you had three employees. Would you still do a blind survey like that? Or would you structure it differently? Cause I know a lot of the listeners are probably smaller firms. Yeah. I would still do a blind survey. I think that there's a lot of value in it. I think that I think too often we feel like we have to cater to individuals when we know exactly what their problems are. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we can't actually do what's best for the greater good, which one person might feel one way by themselves. And when they speak vocally, it changes everybody else's feelings on how they feel. Mm-hmm. And so giving people that that platform to be unique and be personal and be individual and in how they really honestly feel, I think is is actually really important when it comes to those types of things. Um, yeah. Now, if we're asking our team to give us feedback on our PTO policy, potentially very different. I mean, I would probably actually have it in small group sections again and be able to kind of go through it and and talk about who's using it and what's not and should mm-hmm. we create mandatory PTO or whatever it is like all of those kind of things I think are definitely good to have in sessions after you've got some more core-based understanding of who your team is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah, that's great advice. So everyone, if you're listening and you've never done a blind employee survey, start now. <laughs> yeah, very much so. <laughs> okay. So next one, what is the worst thing you ever did with a client? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, man. I, uh, so we, we've been a virtual firm for like 10 of the 12 years that I've been here and we've been Mm -hmm. around for 14 years as a whole, we never went on site after that kind of at that 10 year mark or at that kind of two year mark when I was here. And we agreed to go on site to one client who was local to our more core corporate office Mm -hmm. to do an inventory count for them. Now we are not, we were never like fully versed in how to do this effectively. (laughs) Like I mean, this they were using QuickBooks point of sale too, which of oh, course geez. I don't think there's really anybody who's ever been like an amazing expert at QuickBooks point of sale. Like uh-huh. I you know how to use it, but you're also know enough to be dangerous to where you break everything. Yeah. But um we planned it to be like one day down there with four people doing inventory. It ended up being four full days <laughs> while they were still selling inventory while oh, we were no. there. So like there was no way humanly possible. Our numbers were good. Uh, by the time all this said and done, like the people were tired because it totally affected like all the rest of their work schedules yeah. and it caused like just so much extra chaos and we totally didn't bid it right in any way, shape or form. Like, <laughs> I wish we wouldn't have done it like ever, like I, and which is part of the reason why we stopped just doing full onsite events just yeah. from that standpoint too. But, oh man, like that was like the worst experience to learn, like. We didn't even know like how to set the SKUs right in point of sale when we even got there. Like it was that bad. Like we were learning on the fly through all of it. It was just an opportunity to 
to earn a couple of bucks, which ended up being nothing. At the yeah. End. So that was, that was going to be my follow up question. Was the reason you said yes, because you thought like, oh, this could be profitable or was it more like, oh, I'm just doing a favor for a current client? Oh, we totally thought it was going to be profitable. Yeah. Like we uh, go, we got this, like there's four of us. We'll get through it quick. Like no big deal. Like, and then we showed up and it was like, oh, we didn't even look at your inventory or know what it was before we started. We're just like, yep, we got this. It was like, it's a convenience store of all things. Like, (laughs) and so like they had boxes and cupboards and I mean, you couldn't even have imagined how much extra stuff was in there that we weren't even thinking about. And then they got shipments like while we were there too. So it just kept adding, like it was, it was bad. And then they had perishable items, even which made it even worse. Like, so it was, yeah, we definitely were not prepared in any way, shape or form for it, but it was like, yeah, it's a great opportunity to make some money. Let's do this. Like, no, no, never again, ever. So my takeaway is just never do inventory counts. That's yeah. my, my takeaway. <laughs> there are people who are really good at it. And, mm-hmm. and honestly, like our advice to our clients now, and I think this is something that's important for anybody who deals with inventory. Yeah. Never do a once a year inventory count, like on a small location, like, yeah, focus on a section and do it periodically. I mean, that was the one key thing. I think we took away from it. A positive thing was like, no one should ever have to do this. Like it was so painful yeah. for us and for the client to go through that, that it would have been so much better had we just said, let's start with the section and we'll make adjustments as we go, like over the next two months, like to get it where it needs to be. Yeah. Yeah, I have I have a couple of clients who are retail clients and it's like end of year, you know, I'm closing their books and I'm like, uh, I need that inventory count. Good luck. <laughs> yeah, good luck. Have fun. Yeah. You got negative sixty thousand dollars right now and I've been to your store. There's yeah. not negative. <laughs> this is not how this works. <laughs> yeah. All right. So maybe the real takeaway besides not doing inventory counts is maybe be mindful if you are with clients doing something outside of your normal scope of work, having a full understanding of what you're stepping into. Oh, oh my gosh. A hundred percent. I mean, you really need to to evaluate what you're doing before you agree to it. I mean, you're not going to know everything, mm-hmm. but we were so far off in that experience that it wasn't even it wasn't even close to what we, we should have been prepared for. All right. Yep. Won't ever do an inventory count. Thank you. Okay. Did you know that 52% of accounting practitioners, large and small, still rely on spreadsheets and manual processes for sales tax compliance? Why not move your accounting practice to the 21st century using Avalara for Accountants? The Avalara for Accountants automation platform helps accounting service providers of any size grow their service offerings with sales tax prep and filing, transfer pricing, research, business license management, and more. Scale your practice efficiently with award-winning automation that brings efficiency and accuracy to sales tax compliance. Want to learn more? Email accountants at avalara.com or visit avalara.com. So what is the worst thing you've ever done in regard to running your firm? Oh, man. (laughs) This one is one of those that's like, it hurts a little bit still for me, but I looked past some really amazing people who Mm. should have actually been leaders in our Mm -hmm. organization at times because they were a little bit more quiet and thoughtful than someone who wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so promoting people who were just like, not necessarily the loudest person in the room, but were, had kind of almost drank the punch a little bit that just wanted to be a part of something big and grow and look past some really amazing people. I mean, I actually lost someone this last year because I, 
it took me too long to promote that. Mm. And um, like it hurt a lot. I mean, she had been with me for a really long time as just a clerk and functioning and managing in that space or as an accountant. And she killed it for the short time she was a manager. But then she she left to go to another organization. Actually, one of our clients bought her out, um, <laughs> which was I'm excited for her and where she's going. But yeah. man, was, she should have been a manager like three years before then. Like I totally messed up on that one. Yeah. So from that, then have you, do you have a different way you promote people internally then? Have you changed kind of what that looks like? hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, this, this last year was really a big discovery for, for me on who are the types of people that we hire and promote into different roles. I mean, for a long time, it was just, we promote within and that's all we do. And we're only going to grow these people into what we need them to be. And the reality was like, you actually have to look at what tangible skills those people have. And mm -hmm. what you're trying to accomplish and what you need to do. And those are the people you need to go for, whether they're in your firm or not. And since that person left, we've hired someone from outside our firm that's in a management position now. We promoted someone who'd been with us for six years. And then we promoted someone who'd been with us for, had only been with us for six months when, when we actually moved into this new management group structure that we have. And all of them do great. They do really great work. And mm -hmm. I'm glad that we were more open to understanding what it needed to be. And not that we don't have amazing people in our team already, yeah. but these were the type of people we needed to fill these roles for the type of positions they're in, which was, which was very, you know, which is smart for us to kind of go down that road and be much more open to the type of people we're looking for. Yeah. Kind of like in that same vein, do you think it's harder to manage employees or clients? Ooh. Um, I would say honestly, employees. Yeah. I totally um, agree. Yeah. Like in, and it's not for like the, these all big, super negative things, but you care so much about these people. Mm -hmm. I mean, you get to know them for their life and everything else like that. And you get to know clients in that same way, but they're deeply connected to you. Mm -hmm. like, and, and that's the hardest part is being honest and frank with them when, when you need them to change and do something else or them do being the same to you. Like, yeah, it's so much more emotional, so much more personal when it's an employee versus a, a client. Yeah. Kind of how I see the difference between an employee relationship and a client relationship is with a client, you're really partners in it. Like you're equals, you're standing on the same ground. Whereas employees, like there's a power dynamic there. And it's in that power dynamic for me personally makes me really uncomfortable. I I don't like feeling like I have power and authority over someone. And I think maybe some of that stems from my athletic background where it's like, oh, you're all teammates, you're all equals, you all have different, you know, parts and positions and roles to play. And so, you know, it's all horizontal. And when it turns vertical, I'm just, I get really uncomfortable with it. So have you, do you, are you at the point now where you feel comfortable with it? Like you, you feel good about it or are there still times where you're like, uh, this is weird. <laughs> I think there's times, I mean, it's always tough, like depending on what the situation is. I mean, if a client comes back with some major complaints and potentially it costs you money, I mean, as a mm -hmm. firm owner or as a firm, like you sometimes are just like, oh my gosh, it'd be so much nicer if we didn't have employees. Cause then it, I wouldn't have allowed this to happen, but you're playing the what if or <laughs> game. And, and that's where you have to have those reality checks of like, yeah, yeah I probably would have still made the mistake just like they did. <laughs> I had, they, I would have had the same information they did. And so I think, I think it's gotten better definitely over time. And the longer, the longer you're a leader, the longer or the more you feel comfortable in, in how you or try to inspire. But I think the other thing too, though, is just being real, like truly being real with them on your own expectations to yourself. Like 
mm-hmm. I think one of the the greatest pieces of uh, of insight that one of my partners has shared with with me and with our team on a regular basis is, did you give them as much information as possible mm-hmm. to be able to accomplish this this thing you're asking them to do? And if you can't answer yes to that, yeah, there's no reason for you to be frustrated because it was really you that mm-hmm. didn't provide that right resource. And I think that's that was uh, it, that's I mean it's a two by four percent of the head every time you have to think about that, but it's it's really beneficial to to kind of walk through that process. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so this is the last one. This is the worst thing ever you've done. So no category, nothing. What is the absolute worst thing you've ever done in accounting? <laughs> So I want to say it was just like getting my debits and credits backwards <laughs> on the insurance entry. Yeah. Um, but, but in all seriousness, though, I think the real big thing for me is not fully evaluating something before trying to implement it. Mm. And, and it's, I haven't done it just once. That's why I say it kind of in a vague, broad, you know, broad spectrum. But yeah. I mean, I can't tell you how many systems that, I mean, we've rolled out in the 12 years I've been here, we've done four different project management solutions. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And, and none of them have ever gone wonderful and it consumes so much time yes. for, for your team and for you and takes 12 months for it to actually function. And it's like, yep. like, that's like the worst thing ever because you just delayed all of their work for something super dumb that didn't actually produce what you were hoping it would produce out of it. And so yeah. like, and, and it's the same thing go for an AR system for a client or an inventory mm-hmm. system that we recommend, like all of those kind of things. Like if you don't know all the things that are going into it, like you mm-hmm. can totally pose yourself hardcore on, yeah. uh, on something when it comes to accounting. Gosh, I've, I've had that same experience when I was uh, with my other firm that I was a partner at. I think over the, how many years was I there? Seven years I was there. Like, I think we also went through about four different project management systems. And I swear by like year five, our employees were just ready to murder us. Cause it wasn't just that we were changing over. We were changing over a lot of stuff consistently because in our space, there's new stuff coming out all the time. Yeah. Like shiny object syndrome. And you know, if you run and own an accounting firm, you have that entrepreneurial spirit. And so you're going to have that shiny object syndrome. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Anyway, but it's, you know, you can manage the pain involved with change like that to a certain extent, but yeah. you know, there's always going to be unknown. So what do you do now to kind of plan for that? Um, you know, I, I there's a couple of things that that I think are you know, honestly beautiful about what you said in that, like mm-hmm. I am one of those people that loves the technological side of what we do and how it affects our industry. So, so for me, I truly am like every new software out there, this is going to be perfect. It's going to solve all our problems. <laughs> it's going to be great. I have two really grounded partners that are like, yeah, really? Is it going to do all those things? Like the last four that you told us it was going to do the same thing with. So like having, having someone there in mm-hmm. my partnership that says, Hey, is this really what it says it's going to do? Have you confirmed with this and this and this and this? And them creating that secondary check and balance is really good for for an organization like us, especially as we're getting bigger to to where we we're not. I mean, we can still be nimble, but we're not as nimble as we were when we were three. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. when you're smaller, you can do so much more and move quicker than you can as you get bigger. And mm-hmm. um, and so that's one of the big things I think is really important is before you make that decision, make sure you really do have the right type of evaluation process going into it, where you know what cost you're getting into it, both from the just outlay of cash and then what you're potentially going to lose from efficiencies potentially with it. 
Mm-hmm. But also at the same point, like understanding and knowing that when you decide on that software, that tool, that resource, or whatever you, whatever you are implementing with, that the training aspect that goes along with it, yeah. like, they haven't been in any of the discovery work that mm-hmm. you're doing. Mm-hmm. They haven't been a part of that evaluation process. They don't know the way you're thinking about it. They don't understand the beauty that it's going to create. And so Mm -hmm. you really have to train to the expectation that you have with it. If not, they're never going to achieve the full hope of what goes along with it. And, and managers, oftentimes it's been forever since they've actually been doing the physical work. Yeah. So sometimes your perspective isn't the same perspective they have when it comes to usability and functionality. So having all those kind of things in place really make a, make a big difference. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's such a great point. You said it's like when you're three, your nimbleness is a lot different than 30. Now, do you think, cause I think of this too, like as you grow, like, you know, people talk about economy of scale, but like, what about the opposite of that? Like, what do you think you lose besides nimbleness as you grow like that? Cause you, you do. Yeah. I, you know, I think there's some, some of the things you definitely lose by getting to that size. Like you lose some of that touch mm-hmm. that you have. I mean, my role kind of changed really heavily out this year in our firm to where I don't spend as much time in the operational piece. I'm spending more time on systems and processes for our clients and less with our staff as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, and also more on our vendor relationships. But, you know, before I'd hired everybody in our firm for the last like six years by yeah. myself. Like, so I knew every single person personally. Mm-hmm. My partners didn't because they didn't work with them. Yeah. And, and so like, as you get bigger, you definitely lose that touch and connect connectivity mm-hmm. that you have with the people that you work with. And, and oftentimes, if you don't create the right culture for communication within it, you don't know what you don't have. Like you yeah. don't know the amazing people that you have in the system that could help you innovate or change or develop because you're not a part of their world and, and you're not a part of that integration and what they're doing and, and what they're dealing with on a day to day basis. Yeah. Yeah. So people can get lost in the fray a little bit as 100%. as things scale and grow. Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. Like Especially I never. Especially in the virtual climate we're in right now. Oh my gosh. Right. And it, here's the thing. We're not going back ever. I'm not like, <laughs> yeah. you can pry remote work out of my cold dead hands. Like I'm not, <laughs> I will I mean, work from my pajamas in my bedroom for the rest of my life. <laughs> well, I mean, we had an office at the beginning of COVID and we, we started branching out to being more virtual and, and, and luckily enough, most of our employees were starting to move to work from home anyways. Yeah. So we major downsize, but we got rid of it this last year. Like yeah. there was no reason for us to keep it. And Seriously. so, I mean, to go back and have to spend another five, $10,000 oh, a month right. in, in rent, like, yeah, no, like I'm, I'm not doing that because honestly, it actually creates a culture of dynamics within your team too, of, you got the office people and you got the work from home people and yeah. you create a, you create certain levels of cancer also in your organization that you don't want. Like, yes. That's and so really you got to be careful with that too. Point. Yeah. Cause it's like the people who are working from home are like, Oh, look at these people in the office and people yeah. working from office are like, Oh, look at these people yes, working seriously. from home. Like, they and get bagel Monday. Why don't I get bagel Monday every week? Yeah. Two yeah. mean girls. <laughs> Everyone has their clicks. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. All right. So in summary, then what are kind of your three big tips for managing when things don't go how you plan, when things go awry? What are your, what are your, how do you fix it? What are your three yeah. ways to fix it? You know, Number one for me, I mean, you really have to own it. 
it's mm-hmm. it's not a it's not a badge of honor that you're owning that you made a mistake or something broke or something was all busted up. But yeah, I mean, you're owning the circumstance that you're in and it's your responsibility to make sure it's taken care of. I mean, whether you're a partner or whether you're a manager, like the buck does stop with you in a lot of cases. And so not just stepping in and stomping on people's toes, but knowing there has to be a resolve instead of just pointing fingers. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing for me. Um, the second thing, of course, with it is just recognizing that you're honestly not the only person to ever go through mm-hmm. what you're dealing with. Yeah. Um, there's so many other firms out there. There's so many other people who have gone through half the things that you're dealing with. I mean, what you're doing is not new to, to everybody. And so there are some really great resources out there that you just need to ask. And mm-hmm. so for having a community around you is super important to make sure that you can rely on people to, to ask questions and follow up with so you don't make any more mistakes. Yeah. What's um, that community for you? Like kind of what's your go-to? For me, there's there's definitely a lot of accounting professions professionals that I connect with. Um, I, mm-hmm. Depending on the type of question depends on where I go. I mean, there's certain questions. Honestly, I turn to tax Twitter and it's just yeah. like, hey, Hey guys, let me know what you guys think because it's a very responsive group. Yeah. I mean, it really is. And um, you mentioned at the start that I'm on a bunch of councils and things like that. Like those people are some of the most brilliant people I've ever met. Like I honestly feel like this just very raw garbage rock in the corner of all these beautiful (laughs) gems sometimes. Like because these people are brilliant. They truly are. They they know so much. And and so I rely on them to ask, answer questions for me at times to be able to go through it. And you, of course, were someone who I also relied on for HubSpot stuff that I was <laughs> yeah. diving into, um, which I love. Um, and it's becoming a huge part of our organization. So I oh, think cool. it's I think it's o- opening up and getting to know people that aren't just aren't just in your small click. And like you, you talked about with the, you know even in the office, like you have to be willing to open up to people who are outside. Mm-hmm. of your space, because that makes a world of difference for the things you need. Absolutely. Totally agree. Okay. What's your last tip? <laughs> uh, last thing for me is kind of goes back to the same as rolling out your, um, rolling out softwares and platforms and tools. Like you really need to frame something out if you, mm. if something's messed up and you're just trying to get to a resolution. If you have to step in as a manager or as an owner or whatever it is, like getting the context first before you react. Mm, yep. is super, super important. And then also when you're laying out your executionable plan that you actually provide true context yeah. to the people that you're actually going, you know, you're, you're expecting them to deliver for you because if you don't like they just wander and it's not because they're wandering because they don't know how they're wandering because you didn't give them enough clarity. Mm-hmm. And so you're hurting yourself if you don't take the time to, to walk through that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So those are great tips. So everyone mark those down in addition to don't do inventory counts. Yes. Don't do inventory counts. Own own your problems. <laughs> Recognize you're not alone and then frame it up. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> don't do inventory. Number one thing to learn. I will give $10 to anyone who gets that tattooed on them. Yes. <laughs> so. Okay, so now I want to play another game. (laughs) Awesome. More games. And this game or segment is called Tax Court, all right? And this is where we each take someone something to tax court. And for the listeners, like, this can be literally anything. And so what I'm choosing to take to tax court uh, this week is Prosperity Preachers. And the reason why I'm taking them to tax court is because a couple of weeks ago, I did a TikTok 
on Kanye West's church. So Kanye West has started a church. And even though I grew up attending church, I was very naive. I didn't even understand. Like I knew, you know, they were a nonprofit, but I didn't understand that they did not have to follow rules other nonprofits follow. Like I thought they were subject to the same financial reporting that other nonprofits were. Well, they're not. And they hardly ever get audited, ever. And so you have these prosperity preachers, and I'm sure you all know what they are when I say that, but these preachers who a lot of them are on TV, they go around, they collect lots of money from people, and then they live very extravagant lives, basically (laughs) tax-free. Yeah. And there's no accountability for any of it, you know, some, you know, some churches are accountable with their financials and we'll present them to their members. They'll even get audited financial statements, but there's no requirement for any of that. And so in it's, you know, it's to the point where some of these organizations are worth hundreds of millions up to a billion dollars. And that is just unaccounted for, you know, no at all financial oversight at all. And to me, just being a tax practitioner, that does not sit good with me. <laughs> there's there's hard truths in that. And I, I mean, I, I heard, uh, I was listening to someone talk about this, uh, I think it was about a year ago, and it was a preacher who was, who was saying that he needed his Gulfstream 7 or something like that to be able to <laughs> get the, the word out. And, and that was one of those moments of like, Gulfstream 7? Like, those are that's like crazy money to yes. buy one of those and to maintain them. Like yes. we're not talking about just this like little micro prop. Like we're talking some serious coin getting put out for that. Oh yeah. To, for what? Yeah. And, and in this economy. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You mean half the people you're asking this money from don't have jobs. Like you're using, yeah. you're using God to, to change and try to get your own gain in it. And sure you're teaching good things, but mm-hmm. man, I totally agree with you on that one. Yeah. And it's like, and I don't know necessarily what the answer is because, you know, it's like, I don't obviously want these institutions to be bullied, but at the same time, it's like, they're really taking advantage of the system. You know, some of these people, not everyone, but some of them, and you know, it's a small majority of them for sure, but it's, it really grinds my gears. (laughs) All right, Dan, what would you like to take to tax court? You know, well, luckily I was going to take the NFL. Tax <laughs> yes. But uh but they dropped their nonprofit status in 2015. So I'm oh, okay. I'm I'm not gonna take them. So we're gonna take the PGA tour to tax. Oh yeah, let's because they are still a nonprofit. Um it really like the 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 process, I mean, they they're billions of dollars a year are funneled mm-hmm. into the PGA through uh, sponsorships, through different, you know, different types of partnerships that they have, mm-hmm. and all in the name in a lot of cases of presenting all these things, but also donating to local charities and communities that they work with. And in most cases, only about 13 to 14% of what's even taken in is donated back out. And in that same context, the commissioners and the people who work in these positions are making millions and millions of dollars every year. Mm-hmm. The the people who they actually even do sponsors with sponsorships with, like they're the ones who are also vendors for every single one of those things that they're going through. I think I read one one comment the other day that was like uh, waste management was one of the big sponsors for the PGA, but then they also had a contract with them for several hundred thousand dollars <laughs> for all of their functions. And it's like, I mean, come on, like that's, that's really sad 
that yeah. we take something that people use for entertainment and it can mm-hmm. be non-taxable. They can do, they can charge you tax mm-hmm. for the things you buy from them, or they can go through that process, but they're not actually even contributing to the, to the development of the people that they're trying to. And I don't care that you're making money. I'm glad that the NFL finally got rid of theirs, but yeah. come on, there's so much, so much more that you're, you're capitalizing on. That's not actually helping the people that you're, you're saying you are. Yeah. So that's, that's a big thing for me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, prosperity preachers in the PGA. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're coming for you. I love golf. That's the hard part. Like, yeah, and I love church too. So I guess yes. I'm cutting both. Man, geez. Yeah, but here's the thing: if the people who love it don't hold it accountable, like those are the people who should be holding it accountable. Yeah. You know, so if it's like, you know, if it's someone who hates golf and is going after, you know, the PGA, PG or P, yeah, P, PGA, PG, PGG. PGA, LGBA, yes, whatever it is, but there's a G and an A for golf. Yeah, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> well, we have an electric company here called the PG. Oh, that's But it's awesome. like, you know, yeah, an outside person who hates it going after them, no one's going to take that seriously. But if it's people who want to see the good done and who are passionate about it, like those are the people who should be speaking up. So, 100%. <laughs> All right. So Dan, thank you so much for coming and speaking. Where can people find you? How can people connect with you? You know, we talked about Twitter earlier. I love Twitter. I think it's one of my favorite things that uh, to get on. So just add Dan Luthi is is my Twitter handle. It's really basic and simple. Yes. Uh, and then I'm also on LinkedIn. So I uh, just Dan Luthi. There's more than one Dan Luthi on LinkedIn. So you have to find the bald one with the beard from Utah. But uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm on both those. I don't do any other social, but uh, but I love both spaces. So they they have a lot uh, lot to provide. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for being with us today. No problem. Thank you.